Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Freedom of Species would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners of the land on which we broadcast today. We pay our respect to the elders of all of the lands on which we meet across Australia. Freedom of Species brings animal advocacy to the airways from the 3CR studios in Melbourne and via podcast. Thanks to Sally for the previous show, Out of the Pan, um, covering all the things queer issues. As always, check out Sally's show every Sunday at 12. I'm sure most of you out there have heard about virtual reality and probably augmented reality. And these are um, technologies captured under... um, the concept of extended reality technologies. And they've been promising some cool things for quite a while. Um, a well-recognised example of this that you might know of is from the book and film Ready Player One, where people live life in a fully immersive virtual world playing um, games and whatnot. About a decade ago, some big technological challenges were overcome with VR and the first accessible consumer VR headsets were, were created Uh, And if we fast forward to today, companies like Meta, previously known as Facebook, and other big tech companies have been pouring money into developing XR technology, particularly VR and AR. Um, And the animal world has been exploring these technologies. Uh, It's been dabbling in this this, um, tech as an advocacy tool for a few years now. And you might have, if in previous episodes a couple of years ago, we talked about things like iAnimal, which lets people visit a pig farm through VR headset using 360 or I think it was 180 video, or Peter's eye to eye project where you chat with a rabbit about freedom as you visit sites of animal use. Um, both of these examples highlight an interest in exploring whether XR might encourage people to see animals from a different perspective and perhaps even enable people to see and experience the world from an animal's perspective. To explore the potential of XR for animals, we're chatting with Danny Pimentel, a researcher from the University of Oregon. Danny's research focuses on the impacts of XR storytelling experiences on pro-social attitudes and behaviour change. And in particular, Danny's been conducting research on the, the ability of XR storytelling in the context of wild animals and has done some really interesting projects, including um, use of VR penguins, loggerhead turtles, and looking at how seafood and climate can be explored through um, these technologies. So thanks so much, Danny, for joining today. Really appreciate you coming on the show to chat about this. I just wanted to ask, why XR storytelling experiences with a focus on animals? Oh, man. Well, thanks again, Adam, for having me. and super excited to have this conversation with you. So the why, why XR for animals is an interesting question. And, you know, I always get asked kind of, how did you get here? And, you know, how did, how did you sort of land on this particular line of work, so to speak, where I get to turn people into turtles? It's such a cool job description, right? Uh, but I grew up in, in South Florida near Miami, you know, grew up a beach bum, really connected to the ocean and wildlife. I grew up with, you know, a bunch of pets, you know, iguanas, parrots, dogs, cats. I was just kind of what I was, I had a deep connection with, with wildlife and Florida has a rich, you know, biodiversity there. And so I just grew up around animals and always felt connected to them and their conservation was always kind of central to who I was as a person and didn't really reflect my education. I was a graphic designer, visual storyteller, uh, trying to help, you know, Nike sell more shoes essentially growing up right in my teens and in early career. And uh, when I was in uh, Florida, I ended up trying my first taste of virtual reality in the late 90s, uh, back when it was still very experimental. 
And it was at Disney. It was in the Disney Quest that's now doesn't exist in Orlando. It was like a four-story kind of uh, arcade that all the Disney Imagineers got to test some of the early stuff in, right? And I remember going there, and there was a researcher from Carnegie Mellon, Dr. Randy Pausch, uh, who was working with the Imagineers to test out a first uh, kind of prototype of um, a VR experience called the, the Aladdin Magic Carpet Ride, I believe. And that was my first experience. And I was amazed at this ability to use technology to transport you somewhere else and really feel connected to the, to the spaces in the story. And I never really went back to that, that technology until I started discovering this whole new world of immersive storytelling, this ability to merge kind of my passion for conservation and my connection to the natural world with my storytelling skills in 2D. Uh, and so that's what kind of inspired me once, like you mentioned early at the, at the onset, being commercially available now, right? Early 2015, 2016 is when it became a viable option to researchers and developers, you know? And so I decided to just jump ship from my focus on 2D visualizations and 2D visual storytelling to uh, immersive storytelling and haven't looked back since uh, and just telling different stories about the environment, about different species and every species has a unique story. So you're never going to run out of stories, but that's kind of the, the, the long story short is, uh, uh, you know, just the availability, the opportunity met my uh, growing skill set with this, uh, you know, underlying passion for the environment. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I think your um, also your experience in that 2D world and visual mm-hmm. storytelling in 2D, um, I imagine, really allows you to sort of bring a lot of skills into into virtual um, and XR technologies and storytelling, but also you would see the differences. So what are those differences? What what does VR and XR storytelling have that 2D doesn't? Oh, man. There, you know, it's been articulated in various ways. I think the, the most obvious one is the sense of presence, which everyone kind of uh, knows about this idea that you get a, a genuine sense of being somewhere else, right? So spatial presence is one big thing, right? You put on this headset and through this headset, um, you're able to sort of position yourself in somewhere else, right? Some other environment. You also get a sense of social presence, right? Typically that's thought of in terms of, I don't, I don't only feel like I'm somewhere else, but I feel like I'm somewhere else with other people or other beings, right? It could be non-human beings in that, in that environment as well. Um, I think another X factor really is uh, interactivity, right? This idea that you have, there is a verisimilitude between the physical world and these virtual spaces and that my actions have consequences that feel naturalistic, right? Pick up object, it falls. Um, I feed an animal, it responds in, in, in a certain way. So the responsiveness is, is very unique and, and very natural, right? But then the, the piece that really fascinates me and, and really is just at the center of what I do and uh, what I hope mo- more people start exploring is this idea of embodiment or body transfer, right? This idea that uh, your physical movements can be mirrored onto a virtual avatar, and those kind of signals, that signal matching can create a really interesting experience where you feel like your virtual body is your own. You have this ownership over your virtual body, which means that things happen that happen to your virtual body, actually to your brain, feel like they're happening to you. And as storytellers, we can do really interesting, sometimes unethical things. But for the most part, I think we can do, use it for good to really connect audiences to the plight of wildlife. And so that, that's what really intrigued me was the capacity for body transfer. And that's mostly focused on VR, but you know, with mobile AR, you can do some interesting things with self-perception as well. And a lot of interesting work on how to use AR to change how people view themselves, even though they can see their physical body through augmentation. Um, But yeah, I think those are kind of the four big X factors, if you will, of XR technology. Yeah. And certainly when it's when those things come together, right, that you've got embodiment with presence, and mm-hmm. with immersion and with interaction mm-hmm. that you actually get something very different because i suppose we can we can people could read a book and read a story where they are a, an animal character from the perspective right. of the animal um yeah. but how do you think those things interacting really affects the user in v in xr and vr yeah i think there's a lot of interesting work kind of trying to quantify what that is and what that effect is. I mean, from like a memory perspective, right? Uh, we just imprint 
these experiences mm. in different parts of our brains than we would moving images on a screen, right? Just from a cognitive perspective, we're storing it differently. We're storing it like a lived experience, um, which means we retrieve that information later on in life when we're making decisions, whether it be where, where I shop, what I buy, what organization I support, uh, what food consumption decisions I make. Uh, and so I think when we think about how experiences are imprinted on our minds and how embodiment plays a role in shifting that from, you know, passive 2D exposure to imagery to lived experiences, that's very powerful, right? Um, I think that's probably the, the biggest uh, mechanism there, uh, personally speaking. It's just how it imprints on memory. And then, you know, emotionally, right? Sort of the emotional factor of how proximity to others, to other beings, can really create uh, empathic and emotional connections. And when we can't be close, right? So it's like, you know, I go to, you go to the beach, which I used to frequent often, uh, Oregon, I, I'm in Portland now, so I'm a bit far from the beach. But, you know, being out in the wild, being out with marine life, being in close proximity builds those connections to the species, right? Uh, makes, sort of encourages you to engage in environmental stewardship. But for those of us that can't have that direct interaction, we have to ask ourselves, well, you know, it's easier said than done to buy a plane ticket somewhere to go see great apes or marlin in the ocean. We can't do that, right? Most of us can't. So VR gives us that illusion of proximity. And as storytellers, if we can give audiences uh, that perception of proximity to wildlife and that imprints on their mind as if it actually happened, then by definition, we are connecting them deeply to the natural world in a way that they otherwise couldn't do. So. Mm, yeah, so people are actually having an experience and that experience right. changes the way you um, remember and learn. And as you say, um, this embodiment, you know, in education, the, the buzzword is embodied learning and that's yeah. all, the, all the rage. And for the audience, you know, that, what that means is so there's a difference between you reading about gears, for instance. You can read mm -hmm. about and see images of gears, but if you give someone the opportunity to go and crank a gear with your arm while right. giving them the information about that gear, then they have a different type of learning experience. And often it's more powerful and it is remembered for longer because it's the embodiment of that learning that actually helps instill it in exactly. our memory. And VR allows us to do, and XR, I should say, allows us to do some of those things. 100%. Yeah. Um, and you, you mentioned... Um, you mentioned the ability to connect um, perhaps emotionally as well, I think. And there's this, you know, VR and XR often gets um, talked about in relation to empathy and the ability mm -hmm. to have people empathize with other perspectives. Do you have any thoughts on that? Because I know there's sort of like people, are, there's a bit of a debate in literature around the ability of XR to promote empathy, whether it should promote empathy, all these sorts of things. What are your thoughts on VR oh, and XR and empathy. Yeah, I mean, I think it starts with how, how, how are we defining empathy is the first part, right? And so you'll get different definitions. You know, sometimes it's this single kind of conceptual definition that's very one-dimensional. Other times it's very multidimensional and empathy is many things and can you can activate certain parts of empathy versus others. So in my work, I, I typically think about it in terms of, you know, empathy can be a response and that response can be empathic concern or empathic distress, right? So do you care about the other or are you feeling pain on behalf of the other, kind of delineating it across those two things and sort of trying to measure, well, which one leads to certain responses behaviorally or attitudinally, right? Um, but whether we should be thinking about VR, XR as an empathy machine, I think it, it can be short-sighted at times, right? Because we treat empathy and I say we, I mean, many folks in sort of in the research space that are testing the effects of XR for these pro-social outcomes, we typically think of empathy as the ultimate outcome. It's like, oh, well, it led to higher self-reported, you know, measures of empathy. And, you know, that's the end of the story. Great. We made people more empathic, but we're not connecting the dots as much as we should be, right? Mm. How, how is empathy serving as an actual mechanism for the, for the dependent variables or the, you know, outcomes and responses that we actually care about? right? So is it leading to changes in donation behavior? Is it changing, you know, how people uh, are shopping, right? Are they shopping more sustainably? Um, we we want to see and connect those dots. And I think to your point, we're still a bit unclear in terms of how XR 
and immersive storytelling beyond just empathy can actually lead to those outcomes. And that's why we need more work in this space is to really try to paint a clearer picture of what's actually happening under the hood, so to speak, right? Yeah, and I think I think that's a um most social science really suffers from that actually <laughs> what are we actually um testing and you know it's like yeah. intentions for behavior change rather than actual behavior change so that's a that's a big yeah. that's a big problem to overcome that the whole research field i think is trying to figure out yeah. Um, yeah. um so back to sort of like animals in xr i've noticed that in a couple of your the experiences that you've you've done some research on you've got animals as a context. So the seafood and climate change animals are a, are a context um, or the the uh, products from animals provide some context for the storytelling. You've got animals as characters in the penguin experience mm-hmm. that you've tested. And then you've got animals as player. So the player mm-hmm. is the animal in Project Shell with loggerhead turtles. I just wanted to ask, like, how does that, the opportunity to place animals in different um frame animals or have animals be uh placed differently in the storytelling how does that change how you approach your storytelling oh that's yeah that's a great question and i think all of those different projects are trying to answer different questions right so i think there's interactions as wildlife and there's interactions with wildlife and you know when you embody a sea turtle in, in project shell for example you go through three phases of a sea turtle's life from hatchling to adulthood to nesting adult. And the, really the, the purpose of, of that, of creating that experience is to understand how embodiment changes self-perception. So does that make the species that you are embodying part of your in-group, right? And so, and which we did find, right? We, I, I won't bore you with the details of our studies, but we're essentially finding that that embodiment with sea turtles, with loggerheads specifically, make you perceive other sea turtles in the shared environment as part of your own, which changes the way you perceive threats affecting that species, um, which is very powerful. And we can you know, use that in various ways from an environmental messaging perspective. So there's that piece. And then there's the interactions with wildlife, right? So being a human interacting with penguins, using AR to clean an oil slick penguin, right? In that case, what we're, what we're really trying to understand is um, how does, you know, can AR and can these mediated interactions with wildlife give us the same benefits, the same pro-environmental benefits that actually engaging in philanthropic behavior with animals, I like to actually do in the wild, right? And, and, you know, if you go to a zoo or if you're engaging in rehabilitation efforts locally with certain you know, species, there are you know, a lot of studies that show that that direct interaction with wildlife can lead to some of these pro-environmental outcomes. And so we're trying to sort of measure and assess the equivalence of AR-based interactions with wildlife and in vivo exposure, right? And so that's kind of what we're testing with that, you know, in that context. And then with the third uh, framing example you mentioned, which is uh, showing in VR what the effects of ocean acidification will be on seafood. The purpose there is really getting at uh, personal relevance, really, right? This idea that there's psychological distance between audiences and the threats, right? Like climate change is far away. It's affecting icebergs far away from me, and it's happening very slowly, and it's affecting communities that are not in my social circles. So the question is, how do we make things personally relevant, right? And so in that case, what we're looking at is we build a a, a seafood buffet where users can select their favorite seafoods, right? So they can pick the lobster, they can pick the shrimp. And the purpose of that is really just to gauge what's your favorite food, right? What is personally important and favored by you, so that when we show the effects, it's only affecting things that you care about. And so we're trying to assess whether that personal relevance is powerful enough to change the way you view and respond to the environmental threat, which is ocean acidification, right? So it's like all of these different strategies and frames are activating different processes that we hope can lead to the same outcome, right? Which is a more educated, connected, empathic, and frankly, concerned community, right? Now, we're not trying to be alarmist here, but we are trying to ensure that audiences know, A, that there is an issue, B, that it is affecting other beings, and C, that it will affect them indirectly through that. So I think they're each different paths to hopefully the same outcome, if that makes any sense. 
Mm. And I'd love to dig into that a little bit more after a um, after mm -hmm. a short break in a moment. But you you also reminded me that um, you know another affordance of these technologies is they allow you to make those direct connections. So yeah. with the choice of seafood, the environment around you can instantly change based on your choices um, mm -hmm. and dilate time. So you can have someone experience a loggerhead turtle's um, sort of life or phases throughout a life that might take years or decades all within 15 minutes, like within 100%. Project Shell. Yeah. My, you know, my advisor, my PhD advisor, Dr. Sri Kalyana Raman, who is at the University of Florida, who's done a lot of work in this space. Uh, I love the term that he coined, which was accelerated futures. It's like VR as a method for accelerated futures, whether it's climate change or any other a threat that's slow moving. To your point, we can engage in that time dilation and show consequences immediately as opposed to over the course of 10 years, um, which is, you know, frankly, as someone that's in my, you know, from Miami, we're starting to see those effects, you know, dilate in time. We're seeing that it's no longer years, it is now months. Uh, and it's becoming psychologically proximal to a lot of people, but for most, it's not. So, mm. it's yeah, su super interesting stuff. So we'll have a short break, um, and we'll be back in a moment. Ain't got no home. Ain't got no shoes. Ain't got no money, ain't got no class, ain't got no skirts, ain't got no sweaters, ain't got no perfume, ain't got no love, ain't got no faith. I ain't got no culture, ain't got no mother, ain't got no father, ain't got no brother. You're listening to Freedom of Species here on 3CR Community Radio, and we're chatting with Dr. Danny Pimentel about the affordances, the uses, and the potential of XR technologies for communicating about animals. And um, Danny's just been discussing some of the uh, research and projects that they've been working on, and I just wanted to dig into some of those a little bit more to get you get a an understanding of um, what you're finding. So you you talked about the different approaches that you can take um, to place animals within the storytelling um, XR storytelling experience, and that you're hoping or you're testing whether these lead to the same outcome, hopeful outcome, which is. Mm -hmm. I imagine, I assume, pro-environmental behaviours, pro-environmental concerns, maybe animal concerns. What are you? What are you finding? Are you there yet? Do you know? <laughs> do you have any answers for how these oh, things God. impact people's um, concerns and interests? Oh man, you know, I forget who told me this, but it, someone mentioned it uh, many years ago to me. It's like good science never gets you answers; it just gets you more questions, right? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> So, so that's definitely the case. I've had more questions than answers, but it, you know, it has been interesting to investigate um, in terms of like animal embodiment specifically, because that's been kind of the bulk of my work. Hmm. Uh, and especially, you know, one of the series of studies that I did around Project Shell uh, got at this uh, problem, this kind of psychological quirk that humans have called psychic numbing, which is really important in, in sort of environmental communication, because when we're communicating the sort of the, the gravity and the severity of some of these environmental threats, right? Whether it's ocean acidification, sea level rise, you know, biodiversity losses, whatever it is that you're communicating to the general public, you typically have to use numbers, right? You have to use numbers and you have to show people the scale of loss, right? And what happens is with, with psychic numbing literature, which is uh, based on uh, Paul Slavic's work, who's actually here at the University of Oregon as well, he, what, it, what sort of he coined that term was based on this idea that when you show people two ads, let's say you show one person an ad about, uh, you know, starving children, and you have one version of the ad that has just one hungry child, and it's asked people to donate. And you have another group that exposed to the same messaging, it just shows, you know, 12 hungry children, you know, people will donate more towards the single child versus the many. 
Mm. And that's just, and that's a phenomenon called psychic numbing, this idea that the more victims there are, the more sort of the less sensitive we are to those numbers and we just become desensitized. And a lot of that is because we're unable to empathize or sort of uh, connect with the masses as opposed to a singular victim where we're not able to infer emotions on a group as easily as we are to, to a single victim. And that always fascinated me, right? Because on the one hand, we want to tell the truth when we communicate the scale of loss. We want to show that there's X thousands of lost, you know, whatever species, insert species based on your local geography. And we want to be able to tell the scale. But if we do, you know, the research is showing that it's not going to help your outcomes. You're not going to get more people to donate towards conservation efforts. And so I wanted to sort of first explore that with animals, right? And there's been some studies that show the same phenomenon occurs when you talk about one, you know, endangered panda versus 12 endangered pandas, right? Mm -hmm. We see the same in print ads. And I wanted to know, okay, is the same going to be found in VR, right? So if we, there's a virtual reality public service announcement around sea turtle, uh, threatened sea turtles, will we still observe the same psychic numbing if we have people go through one simulation with one turtle versus many turtles? And, you know, one of my studies did test that, and we did find that, that people that went through a VR public service announcement about sea turtle conservation donated significantly more actual dollars towards the single victim condition than in the many victims condition, right? And that's, you know, regardless of proximity, that sense of presence, all that was the same. It's just the number that was changed. And then from that study, my question then became, all right, how do we reverse or at least, you know, offset that psychic numbing or what's also called compassion fade, right? Compassion mm -hmm. fade is another cool term for it. How do we turn that off, right? How do we make people feel the same, if not more, about the many victims than the single victims? And that's where I came in with animal embodiment. I was like, well, if people are embodying, you know, the species and they're exposed to the many versus the single I presume that embodiment, which creates this self-other psychological overlap, right? This idea that I'm part of this group now because my body is part of this group, that should offset it, right? And, you know, through a series of studies, we ended up finding support for that. It's this idea that when users are embodying the victim and they engage in that, you know, in this case, you're embodying a sea turtle and you're, you see yourself and other sea turtles affected by threats like, marine debris, microplastics, you know, boat netting, all this stuff is affecting you and others. We had people go through the simulation just by themselves, by themselves with one other sea turtle and by themselves with many other sea turtles. And what we found was, you know, regardless of what condition you were in, people donated hypothetical donations and, and other forms of, of pro-environmental responses were relatively the same. There were no significant differences across the group. So that's suggesting, well, there's some mitigation of compassion fade because if there was compassion fade, people would have donated or, you know, responded differentially to the single victim version than the many victim version. Mm. But then what we wanted to do is, well, is it actually affecting actual donations? Mm. And B, is this effect predicated on the victims being of the same species, right? So because I'm a turtle, yep. and I see other turtles, I'm going to have this response. But what if they're dolphins, right? Dolphins are not me. I am a turtle, right? So I should... Compassion fade might be present when you're exposed to other victims of a different species than your virtual body. So we tested that and we ended up finding support for that. We found that participants who embodied a sea turtle and saw a single sea turtle suffer with them versus the, you know, another version where it was many sea turtles suffering with them. People donated more to the many victims condition. Like it was almost like amplified suffering and it was actual donations. But the reverse was true when you were exposed to dolphins, right? So if you are a single turtle, and you saw one dolphin suffer along with you versus many dolphins, people donated more to the single dolphin than the many dolphins, which all of this is to say, when you embody a sea turtle, psychologically, that is part of your in-group, and that is influencing how you perceive threats affecting them and ultimately how you respond with the dollar, which is ultimately what a lot of nonprofit organizations and NGOs care about because money talks. Money is what funds the actual conservation efforts happening out in the wild, and we need that, so... I would say that's probably, you know, the bulk of what I've been finding with turtle embodiment, you know, at the very least. Yeah, It's so fascinating. And it's it sort of um, been working on some stuff around um, compassionate conservation, this idea where we need to take, um, have greater concern for animal welfare and animal ethics in our conservation is, you know, the 
the early um, papers, that, you know, the, the the first paper to sort of um, talk about conservation biology and set conservation biology up said animal welfare is not part of conservation biology. We shouldn't be thinking about it. We're just about collectives and species. Mm-hmm. And I wonder whether there's something going on when we when we um, reduce animals down to a species that we actually, uh, as conservationists, we're actually um, causing some sort of compassion fade. Where mm-hmm. And the com- conserva- uh, compassionate conservation is sort of challenging and, and um, asking us to consider the individuals as well. I'm going to have to think about that a little bit more, but that, your, your discussion there really highlights that as something worth pursuing, I think. Yeah, and there's, you know, unfortunately, there's a trade-off too with all these strategies we engage in. I think we have to be very careful, and I struggle with this as well, because what you're doing when you create these human-wildlife interactions in VR, mm-hmm. you're setting the standard for what they expect wildlife interactions to be. And more often than not, they're not realistic. Even in my example, right, the behavior, the approach behavior and the proximity you get with other sea turtles, it's not what it's like in the wild. The behavior of the ancillary fishes that are in your environment are not behaving exactly the same way that they would behave in the wild. And so I think we have to be careful, too, because as whatever you gain in building that proximity through Mm. VR, you know, that might spill over and have adverse consequences, you know, in terms of how people engage with actual wildlife in the wild, right? And so, which may work against conservation efforts, right? I see, I think we see that a lot with turtles specifically too on the coast yep. with hatchlings and handling dolphins. We, you know, that, I forgot when that was, but the handling baby dolphins. Yeah, it's, it's very pro- problematic. And I'm not saying it's exclusively caused by, by this, but uh, I think we need to be very thoughtful about how we design Mm. and create interactions, uh, virtual interactions with wildlife, um, and, for sure. And I, I wonder if that comes, you know, a, a question that I'm really um, interested in is this. So the embodiment and this perspectives taking, does it does it allow people to really see the other and recognise that they have a life, that they're living and that they, they want to live and that, you know, with with the right sort of um, context and info, say you know they're over there. Let them let them do that. Um, I wonder how that plays out in the development of XR technologies. Because yeah, as you, as you say, the you know the selfie culture and wanting to get photos with wildlife and you know tiger cubs in zoos or um, and the really horrific example you just mentioned with the baby dolphin that was just yeah. like thousands of people, hundreds of people, whatever it was, they just pick this dolphin out of the, out of the water and take selfies with it and kill, kill the dolphin. It's just terrible. It is. And I think, you know, to your point is ensuring that we create those connection points between the lived human experience and the lived animal experience. And uh, in the turtle simulation, there are a couple of scenes that I think do accomplish that one in particular talking about being handled, right? It's, we can never imagine having a giant pick us up and, you know, do what they want with us. Right. But one of the scenes in our simulation is, you know, you hatch out of your egg, spoiler alert for anyone that wants to play, (laughs) Uh, you hatch out of your egg and you have to find your way to shore and your vision is very limited. So you're relying on kind of blurred sources of light, which can be kind of sources from the moonlight, but can also be kind of uh, coastal lighting from the buildings and it gets very confusing for people. And then ultimately what happens is you get attacked by a predator because you've wandered off in the wrong direction, but a human saves your life. A human walks by and picks you up. And for a lot of people, at least anecdotally in some of the studies that I run, that moment when you're picked up by this huge human being, it it creates a lot of discomfort and a feeling of powerlessness that I don't think many humans have felt in that mm. context, right? Because we, we just can't feel that way most of the time. Um, and so that kind of replicates some of what you're talking about there in terms of, you know, uh, sort of threatening interactions with wildlife that can be very problematic. Also in, in the final scene, in terms of emotional connections that we can have and similarities between man and, and, and wildlife is this idea at the final level, you return to shore as a nesting adult, right? So you have a whole clutch yeah. of eggs, you got to find and you got to dig your nest. You got to find a suitable nesting place. And what happens is 
As you dig, you notice that they're short armoring, preventing you from digging the hole. Eventually, you're unable to hold your egg, your clutch of eggs anymore, and then you just dump them all. So you lose all your eggs, and you see it visibly escape your body. And for a lot of users, that's a very powerful experience because you've already assimilated into your role as mother turtle. Mm. And you have a connection, and even if you don't know it, with your clutch of eggs that is now you know dead, essentially, right? And I think for many users, that's a very profound experience um, to, to have that loss because we've all experienced loss in some capacity or will. Mm-hmm. And so those are some of the connections that we can make. And, and, and to your point is showing that wildlife go through much the same things that we do. And we have to you know, forge those connection points to remind people that, hey, what we do through urban development affects their livelihood, right? And we should care about that. I And the... So I found that Project Shell, you know, I'm an ecologist and have a, a, a general understanding of, of these things and turtles are often a, um, a point of discussion in classes and things. So I've got a, mm-hmm. a general understanding of the issues of um, turtle conservation, but doing pro- like um, playing Project Shell, it really solidified some of those points for me that, that were in the back of my mind, but I couldn't really recall very easily and the the one that you just mentioned there where you are trying to dig um a a nesting a nesting hole for your eggs and you hit the barrier and you expel all your eggs that really that sticks in my mind i played the game five months ago and i can recall it very clearly um i also had a couple of colleagues play it and they they really disliked that as a they're IT people, they're XR developers, VR developers, yeah. and they disliked that as a player, like a restriction. But I really enjoyed right. it as a um, as a environmental communications piece. Right, and- frustration can be can be utilized properly. I think uh, yeah. you know, it, I think it's also it was in rough development, so maybe we can we have improved it since. So maybe they can try it again. <laughs> and I, I um, on on that point, I want to ask whether you've got any sense of this um you know for years and years people were there was this sort of panic around violent video games and kids not being able to um distinguish between video games and reality and they'd be violent in real life if they played violent video games but with this evidence shows that that's just not the case people can distinguish between games in real life yeah um do you think that I know the concern about um, creating experiences that are not like reality and that we shouldn't want to have people replicate in reality, like getting very close to penguins or turtles or picking turtles Mm -hmm. up and those sorts of things. Do you, do you think that people can distinguish between VR and reality? Do you think it will just translate from one to the other, or is it similar to this, you know, violence panic? It's an interesting question. You know, I think, when we talk about environmental comms in XR, I will, most of what we're doing, I wouldn't say most, but a lot of what we're doing in terms of storytelling is depicting or putting people through some form of trauma, which is unfortunate because that's what the natural world is going through because, mm. you know, a large part of our decision-making as a collective. And so when we talk about trauma in VR, I think there's a real concern there. I think it's valid. Right? I think there is being able to distinguish that you're an immediate experience, but then there's your brain overriding that understanding with physiological responses because it can't discern the difference mm-hmm. physiologically, right? And, you know, when I was testing Project Shell, we see this a lot with younger audiences. Actually, mm-hmm. that was one of the uh, findings I, I found in my studies was this idea that age is a big factor shaping how, how accepting you are of your virtual body. And that subsequently affects how realistic it is and how impactful the embodied experience can be. So for younger people, their brain is malleable. They're still figuring out self, right? Mm. And so they can willingly enter a turtle body and accept it as part of their own quicker than someone in their 40s or 50s, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think it it was really concerning for me to see, uh, there was one child that that, uh, used it. I forget how old they were, maybe like nine years old or 10 years old. that had, hadn't tried VR, put the VR headset, and then asked their mom a very simple but profound question, which is, where did you go, right? And so <laughs> to, I think the younger you are, 
the more concerns you should have about discerning what's happening in the virtual world with the, the real world. But even for adults, we're seeing evidence that, you know, despite being able to acknowledge that you're not in the physical space you're in when you're in the headset, it can still affect you in profound ways. It was a, I mean, it's even affecting legislation, right? There was a, an account of a, a female VR user who was in a social virtual space who had another male user in that virtual space invade her privacy with his controllers in her private areas and Mm -hmm. ultimately led to her throwing her headset off. And she experienced that as an actual, you know, harassment, like as as an actual Mm. lived experience that happened to her violation of her space. So how do we treat that legally? Right. And that's, these are questions that we still don't know. And so that's why VR or, you know, uh, companies like Meta have set kind of the age barrier at 13 or so, because they kind of want to avoid those issues, but yeah, we still need we, we need to do more research, you know, mm. to, to sort of understand. And and like you say, I think um, you know age will be a factor, but I I imagine there's also just a general you know normal distribution on how mm. um, likely someone is to uh, sort of be immersed within an embodied a VR embodied experience and so I think about some people in VR chat, for instance, really or a, a more um, uh, maybe commonly known game is Second Life, where people right. really experience that as their as the life that they want yeah. and as the body that they have. And yeah. um, there may be there, it just may be that some people are more um, open or or susceptible to those sorts of experiences. One hundred percent. Yeah, it's this idea of how I think the term is transportability, right? This mm. idea of how easily you are transported by text. And story that plays a role in your acceptance of some of these virtual environments and virtual bodies for sure. Mm. Fantastic talk so far. So we'll have a another quick break and then we'll come back and we'll chat about um, some of the uh, problems or difficulties or challenges that we face in um, XR technologies and animals. listening to Friend of the Species and we're here with Dr. Danny Pimentel and we're discussing the uh, affordances of XR technologies in the use of um, animals and how we could we might use XR technologies to communicate ideas and, and tell stories about animals and animals experiences and, and give people experiences um, that animals might have. Um, so we talked a little bit, Danny, just before the break, that um, there are some challenges and some ethical issues that we face. Um, one that I often come across when I'm chatting to colleagues about XR in, in this context is they raise concerns about the use of technology um, as a way to engage people with nature. And they think, like, why why use technology? Doesn't that just divorce us even more from nature? Shouldn't we just encourage people to get out into nature um and they're they're sort of concerned with widening the human nature divide through technologies you know more screens is bad do you have a response to that sort of that sort of concern man i wish i could show an image but there's a photo that i that i was taken of me and my research team at florida I was at the florida museum of natural history and in that photo we're kind of in the gallery area. It's wide open and there's a bunch of seats and it's a bunch of kids with headsets strapped on their faces. So imagine like a dozen kids just in a virtual world and they're doing their thing with technology, right? And then the juxtaposition of that with on the far wall, huge mural, like, I don't know, 50 feet wide. I don't know how long, how big it is, but it was huge. And it was up on the wall. It was a big picture of the planet. 
And I forget the quote, but it, it, the quote above the, the picture of Earth was, preserving Earth's biodiversity is the greatest issue or greatest something, something or another that humans face. And so I, I always love showing that photo because it, that juxtaposition is so important and, and it's, it gets at what you're talking about, which is a concern that many people have, which is this idea of we're using technology to, to connect audiences to wildlife, but this image is, is what's most concerning is we're disconnected from wildlife in, in the most you know, embodied way possible. Like literally all of our senses are re- being redirected towards synthetic representations of what's outside this building. Right? What the heck are we doing? Uh, but I think it's a valid concern, and it just emphasizes the point that I made earlier, which is we be, we need to be thoughtful about how we're using technology. It's not mm. the silver bullet. It's not going to cure all the woes in education and as in enterprise training and conservation, regardless of what industry you're in. There's snake oil salesmen saying that VR and AR is going to be the next big thing to fix everything. It's not the case. It's a tool, and we need to be strategic and use it in certain measures, right? I actually don't advocate for the overuse of VR. I think it should be complementary. And what really matters is in-person experiences, right? And I think this ties back to another point that I wanted to make, which is, and my my projects suffer from this as well, is that we're telling stories about charismatic species that, you know, everybody knows about in the media, right? Sea turtles, penguins, lions, tigers, polar bears, everything. These are all charismatic species, but how many of you live next to any of these? None, right? Nobody, right? Maybe coastal communities live next to sea turtles. But what we need to be doing is how, asking the question, how can we create immersive experiences about local biodiversity mm. that gets people out in their neighborhood to do things that affect them directly? And that's one of my goals. I think that's what I want to do, especially with AR, just considering how everyone has these mobile devices with AR capability, being able to walk around and in, interact and engage with your natural world in your backyard in meaningful ways. That's what we, what we should be focusing on. Um, and I start with myself. I want to be focusing more on that. And I certainly will um, in, the, in the near future for sure. And that, that actually ties into another show we just recorded yesterday and should be either playing last week or next week. Um, we interviewed a couple of authors uh, from the Urban Field Naturalist Project, who brought out a book recently, uh, A Guide to the Creatures in Your Neighbourhood, which Ooh. brings to, like, it encourages people to um, dive into that world of field naturalists and see um, and connect with and ask questions about those creatures you live with and who live with you, who are right in your backyard. And I think that that's a really great um, message. And I I totally agree. I love the idea of um, common, yeah, using these species that are very common. And, you know, this is one of my um, interests in conservation is is talking about like the problematic native versus non-native descriptors. And there's, some of the species that are common to all of us, to almost everyone who lives in an urban setting or anywhere where humans are, are those species that are very common and perhaps um, negatively framed as non-native. And I wonder if there's a, you know, have an experience as a, as a rock dove or a pigeon, you know, and yeah. that, that's something that every, almost everyone on the, on the planet knows of and, um, and, provides a different connection, a different narrative about these creatures who are just living life, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. And 100% agree. the other, the other thing that I, that I really like about your, how you, how you're, you're um, approaching VR and framing it. And one of the ways that I like to think about um, the use of VR is it's re- it's really best used for things that are impossible, dangerous, expensive, or perhaps distant. And I certainly taking the perspective of other animals is impossible. It's something that we can't otherwise do. Um, and it's da- often dangerous for the animals. So I think in the context of animals and particularly wildlife, VR offers maybe a safer route for um, engaging with animals. A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a, what was that book? Uh, Charles Foster wrote being a beast, I think where he, he lived mm. as animals. We, unfortunately, we are, we're not as brave as Charles. We can't do that. <laughs> not all of us. <laughs> we can't live as deer and, and foxes and whatnot. So, yeah, to your point, it is uh, – I wouldn't say it's impossible because Charles has done it, and I forgot yeah. the other guy's name, the, the goat man. 
but it's expensive and and not comfortable. I would imagine. Um, another another piece you sort of talk about, um, or another another. Uh, yeah, point around the perils of of XR-based interactions with wildlife that you make is that users will bring their biases with them to the experience. Um, and I think it speaks to the differences in design intention and the ways that the user approaches the experience, like um, types of gamers. So I come to an experience, I'm, a, I'm an explorer. I like to get into a game and I just want to see every part of the map. And users... Uh, you know, we live in a world that is very anthropocentric, that um, values humans' perspectives and humans much more highly than animals. Uh, is there ways that you think you can design to challenge that? Or do we do we design XR interactions um, and experiences knowing that some people are coming to it with biases against animals? That's a, yeah, that's a great question. I think when you talk about design in XR, there are so many questions we just still don't know. I mean, mm. and that that's from all facets of design, like yep. from user interfaces, user experience to level design and AR and VR. We just we're not we're not that good at it yet because mm. we're still finding our legs, so to speak, right? Yeah. Um, so I think there's a lot of room for improvement, especially when you talk about some of the biases that you were just mentioning. Um, I think the ones that I have tested have mostly looked at like size bias is, is mm. one thing, right? So this idea that as developers, we can counteract our human and innate bias towards larger species, right? Mm. By adjusting size, right? Uh, and so I think in that study, what I did, I created a VR simulation about penguin conservation where you have to rehabilitate oil slick penguins. And we created two versions of the experience because we wanted to test this size bias, this idea that we donate more and we care more about larger species, right, in terms of size. And so we just swapped the, the models of the penguins to have a version where it's smaller penguins and then another version where they're larger, right? Still within the kind of parameters of the larger and smaller ends of the spectrum, but again, larger and small. And what we found is that, yeah, in VR, people not only state they're going to help penguin conservation more when they engage in the larger version, the penguin mm -hmm. version, but in the game, part of what they have to do is actually clean oil slick penguins. And what we did is once they completed the task, we said, well, you can stay in and clean as many as you want after the fact. And we found that people that had larger penguins stayed in significantly longer and cleaned more penguins. So it actually translated into behavioral mm. changes or behavioral differences rather. So as a designer, you want to sort of take note of that and say, well, if I know that this story about this particular species is designed to lead to this outcome, you know, should I adjust things like size? Should I adjust things like ornamentation and color uh, and the environment, if I know it'll nudge audiences towards a more optimal response. And there's, you know, give and take with that, right? Again, going back to my point about just being very thoughtful, are you sort of giving people misinformation by making all the species much larger than they actually are just for the sake of increasing, you know, donations? That's a, it's a really tricky, it's a slippery slope, right? And does it, does it reinforce biases? Rather right, than exactly. challenging, trying to use the mediums right. to challenge biases and get people to break those down. Yeah, it's such exactly. a fascinating opportunity, I think. Yeah. Mm. No easy answers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of the other, um, I just, I'm just going to throw out a couple of other, we're mm -hmm. close to having to wrap up. Um, but some of the other challenges that I've sort of noted, I think that you talk about are, um, like, I've, I'm really interested in Umwelt. And you, this is like an understanding that animals experience the world and have sensory, um, have sensations of the world that are very different to humans. You know, we are very visually focused and a lot of our information about the world is visual. But if you think about a dog, a lot of the way that they understand the world is through smell. And we'll never be able to replicate that within, you know, whether it's in VR or otherwise. Um, but although I did like that in uh, in Project Shell, you sort of give a little bit of that umvote with the baby turtle by blurring out the the vision i think that's really exciting um so there's human limitations um there's also 
it's expensive to create this stuff at the moment. Like we've just, we've just finished creating a project and animal models and animation was just the most expensive part of the bloody project. And what project were you creating? So we've got a a marine parks experience. I'll I'll share it with you. Um, But yeah, yeah. it's, um, but it's really expensive to do this stuff at the moment. Um, And then, and then as you say, there's all these other things like the quality of the technology it ranges from standalone Quest headsets to Vario headsets. And I imagine that some of these aspects of the technology will impact how people, how immersive something is, how embodied they feel. Um, do you have any other broad challenges that you think we face when we uh, are thinking about XR and animals? I mean, I think it's accessibility is one thing, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and that's just for any kind of XR design is ensuring that as many people as possible can experience your story mm-hmm. um, and not gating your content, right? Because mm-hmm. that's just perpetuating kind of ableist design uh, mm-hmm. approaches that I think the you know traditional gaming industry is just now getting around to kind of remedying, right? Uh, I think that's probably the biggest thing, uh, one of the biggest things, um, you know, and then, like you said, the cost, is, uh, the animations for some of these animals, right? It's, it's so nuanced. It was like, you know, cause you know, with humans, you know, you have the issue of, um, Oh man, what is it called? I'm totally blanking on the name. Um, the, uh, when you have humanoid models that just don't look realistic, mm. what's the, uh, yeah, it's, uh, the, that effect, um, half the happy Valley. No, the, anyway, the uncanny a, Valley, Thank uncanny you, Valley. Yes. I totally blanked on. I appreciate you. Yeah. So there's the uncanny Valley effect where you have, you know, humanoid characters that are just not quite realistic enough. So it's really unsettling and really mm. breaks the immersion. Right. And so there's been some studies around that app applied to virtual animal models and their movement. And, mm. you know, it's just not realistic, but, you know, animals like a leopard, you know, their movement is so fluid and mm. it's it's so nuanced that it, it'll take an animator so long to make it work, right? Yep. I think there'll be some solutions. You're seeing a lot of that now with like AI technology. AI, yeah. and it's nuts, man. What you can produce with just text prompts now, it, it's, yep. it's moving very fast, very scary, yep. but also uh, hopefully very helpful for us that are trying to create some of these scenes, right? But I would say access, cost for sure, um, especially for some of these, you know, in these 3D models from more unknown species, local species. Mm. Um, yeah, I would say also ensuring that we have more diverse voices in the creative process and the mm. content creation. And I don't just mean in terms of uh, you know racial groupings or gender identity. I'm also talking about disciplines, right? Mm. Um, ensuring that we have both, you know, ecologists, marine biologists, you know, social psychologists, computer scientists. We need a collective kind of front when we're creating these these stories, right? And these experiences, right? And so, I mean, I was talking with some of the folks at Stanford that created the ocean acidification experience, yep. which is really solid, right? And it's just funny how they talk about how, A, how expensive it was, but B, how a lot of the expenses was just the back and forth because they had to you know, decide with the actual scientists, how much are we willing to sacrifice scientific accuracy for playability and other things. So I've had like, that experience. You know, yep. Yeah, yeah, you're probably going through it now as you, as you release this new, this new thing you're working on. So yeah, I think it's very tough. I think we, as storytellers that strive for accuracy while also wanting to nudge mm. people towards the most optimal outcome, making that trade-off is tough. Mm. Right? Yeah. Been a really great chat, Daddy. I really appreciate your time. And I think we're just scratching the surface. So a few years down the track, we'll have to catch up again to make sure that we um, see how things are progressing because I think they are progressing pretty fast. Um, yeah. But yeah, thanks so much for, for coming on. Thank you, Adam. And uh, I'm going to definitely send you an updated version of Shell. I want you to try up the new... We've, we've updated the digging mechanic. So hopefully it's a little bit easier, but not, no less compelling. So appreciate you having me on the show, man. It was a lot of fun.
Awesome. And I definitely will check that out. And I, I encourage if you've got a headset or you can get access to one, certainly check out Project Shell. Um, it's available for free on Steam at the moment. And uh, it's a really, really interesting experience. And I like that it mixes 360 video and VR. And it's um, quite unique in that way. Yeah. Uh, you can go to projectshell.org if you want more information. Yeah. And that, I think that that site also gives some information about the um, the loggerhead turtles and their conservation. So definitely check that out. Stay tuned for Ray Rotations, a, a music show which always brings some really interesting music from around the world. Um, and we'll be back next week and every Sunday from 1 till 2 p.m. Tune in on 855 a.m. in Melbourne or we're streamed live via 3CR website at 3cr.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.